RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. My guest today is the sound designer Kate Hopkins. She has excelled in the world of natural history documentaries, having worked on virtually all of David Attenborough's films since the groundbreaking Planet Earth series 23 years ago, and most recently, Planet Earth 3, which screened around the world last month. From the age of seven, Kate was exposed to many of the great world cinema classics, like Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin and Brunwell's Asha Andalou, and many more due to her father's involvement with the world of film. Early school life was not a happy place for her, and echoed at secondary school, where she struggled with exams, eventually quitting school at 15, taking on a variety of rudderless occupations, until she landed a job at a small production company in Bristol, initially as a receptionist, coffee maker, and in her words, hopeless typist. She moved across as a general assistant, helping editors to organise the picture trims to be added to the sequences. Unlike her school experience, she began to absorb and retain what was going on around her. She started to assist in the sound editing department and quickly discovered that she loved it and it was to become her creative path, eventually culminating in becoming one of the most respected sound designers in the industry, with three BAFTAs, four Emmys, two Royal Television Society Awards, along with many more. And in 2014, she was the winner of the Technicolor Creative Technology Award at the Women in Film and TV Awards. Her expertise as a sound designer is to creatively craft hundreds of sound elements to not only synchronise with what the audience sees on screen, but also to create a soundscape that enhances the sense of place for the audience's experience, helping to make them feel that they're right there alongside these incredible creatures. Our conversation was recorded remotely with Kate at the Wounded Buffalo Sound Studios in Bristol and with me in Dorset. Let's start with Planet Earth 3. What what was the timescale between you finishing your part of the collaboration and it going on air? Um, actually, the time between when we finish and when it goes on air can be incredibly short. I think my particular episode probably did have a few weeks. Sometimes it can get very close to the wire and can be about five days, but there are lots of checks and balances that programmes have to go through before they get aired. So most producers, <laughs> it's nicer if you finish a few weeks before it actually goes out. But not long. I mean, I think I've, I finished that episode end of August, beginning of September. The remaining three, there's five in all, isn't it, I think? Yes, there's five or six. So are they all in the can, so to speak? Oh, yeah, ev- yeah everything everything's done, done now. I mean, they all get done out of order. I sensed from when I contacted you about setting up this interview 
that quite often you are under under the cosh, it seems, very intense. So is that the way, is it generally like that in, in your world? Yes, it is. It, it's very deadline-based. And because sound is the last element to any program, it could be a feature film, it could be a documentary, anything, sound is the last element to be finished. Yeah. And obviously... But the deadline for the whole program to go out on air or put in the cinema doesn't change. Picture, picture edit can kind of sometimes drifts and goes on for much longer, but doing the sound, it has to be done and it has to finish on a certain date and so it can go off. Does that mean disruptive sort of home life? Over the years, yes. I think uh, there's a lot of weekends get worked and some late nights and for actually for anyone in sound it it is it can get like that some programs don't come in exactly when you think they're going to so you end up with two happening sort of at the same time which means you kind of have to double your hours in the week yes. somehow you often work from home as well don't you i do i think the whole lockdown thing i never used to um, I, I like coming into studio and i still do but once you set up at home especially mm. if you've got a lot to do it can be easier to just work from home because you think okay i can just get up keep working then i can have tea and then i go up and then keep working it's not it's not very disciplined though and, and i mean do you have a family to organise as well no my daughter is 24 oh right so, so, she's, so she's, she's she's well away well, she's well away no i just have my because my setup is on uh, on the dining room table because it takes up quite a lot there's quite a few screens that have to be put on so sometimes my husband does quite like to have it back for sundays <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've spoken to many architects that start that way on their kitchen table uh, and having to clear everything away for Sunday lunch or whatever. Yes, so I, I think it's a, it's a story that runs through many of the creative sort of areas. Yes. Um, okay, well, let's. I, I just want to go back to your childhood. Where were you born? I uh, was born in Bristol, in Clifton, in a little hospital called St Brenda's. And yes, I've kind of lived in Bristol almost my entire life, on and off. I think you mentioned your dad worked for the BBC. Yes, well, in the end, both my mother and father worked for the BBC. Dad went to Bristol University and did a strange combination of zoology and film. Yeah. And although the natural history unit had just, I think it just started in Bristol and that was early 60s, I think. Dad didn't do anything to do with natural history. He did documentaries on West Africa and I think he did one on archaeology as well. Um, he also worked for HTV. So, yeah, so he, he did. I mean, he wasn't there for a long time. He went freelance early 70s, but, but that's where he met my mother. She was a typist or secretary in a helicopter company in Wilson Supermare and then went to the typing pool at the BBC in Bristol. And that's where she met my father. And my right. mother also just kind of moved out of the typing pool and became a production secretary. Normally, when I speak again to, to other people in creative fields, there's either a direct connection with the world that they eventually inhabited or not completely no no connection whatsoever so there is a sort of connection already for you so what, what was your what was family life like at home um well it's um different i'd say by the time it got to the early 70s neither my mum or dad worked for the bbc my dad was forever so just to set up film festivals he was very kind of left field in his ideas and was very interested in getting films from eastern europe and china and like very old films that hadn't been seen for... so not just documentaries then so, so... no no i mean he, he used to try and he him and jeremy 
Jeremy Reese set up the Arnold Feeney in Bristol. Yes. And yeah. Jeremy Reese was the art side of it, and my dad set up the cinema side of it. Right. Um, so, as a, I mean, this was when I was seven and eight. Yeah. Like I was, but I did go and see a lot of very strange films because dad, as I said, used to get quite a lot of like Eisenstein films. Oh, yeah. And great. So, I watched a, a Battleship Potemkin. And really? All that. The, yeah, I mean the famous the, scene with the pram going down the steps, of course. Many times, me and my brother, because <laughs> my brother was younger than me, so we used to go into the Arnolfini with. You know, it was one of the first independent cinemas um, in the country, really. I know there was Scala, which yeah. is similar sort of time in London. So me and my brother, I mean, Anne was about six, and I was about seven or eight, and we just used to queue up and like go, "Oh yeah, we'll watch, you know, Battleship again." Or it was. And there's a film called there's a film called Happiness, which is the fantastic 1930s Russian film, which I think I saw about ten times. Really, and it was all silent, but it was weirdly it was quite interesting because it was kind of based about around Ukraine and how the wheat fields were all sort of taken away from the peasants. So I watched lots of <laughs> kind of oh who's that? Bunuel films. Oh, Le Chandelier. Wow. I can remember eight years old. I mean, <laughs> Chandelier is such a kind of strange yeah. and disturbing film, and I will never forget watching the bit with the, I think it's. Like donkeys being pulled along by a piano. That's right, yes. Okay. For some reason, I'm quite, I think both me and my brother are quite blase about it. It's going, well, yeah. So you had a real sort of film history backdrop. Yes. Compared with your friends, I I would have thought. Oh, yes. Mum and dad had friends who were sort of in that side of the sort of film industry and TV industry. But I said, like, dad wasn't making film at the time. He was mostly setting up the cinema. My mum was helping him as well and bringing, sort of finding old prints from all over the place. I I did find out about, I mean, that was probably my first introduction to sound because he was there were a lot of silent films and there was that kind of cliche of there was a microphone in a production booth and the projectionist did have coconuts and a tray of gravel <laughs> and me and my brother used to go into the projection booth all the time because it was you know if we were kids and it was kind of fun you could see all the huge reels of 35 mil being laced up and yeah because there was a little mic pointed down to this these coconut shells in this tray so that that clearly stuck with you i think i've always i think sort of having that connection to film Film and how film is made yeah. means that I did, even though I, you know, I, did, I worked in a very different sort of side to both my parents did. Yeah, I, I suppose it sort of it meant it wasn't such a... An alien place. No, exactly. It wasn't alien at all. I mean, you know, in the end, mum and dad went on to do different things. Mum became a phototype setter when computers... Very oh, really? Well, she, like, she was self-taught. I mean, and yeah, obviously before that, it was all the printers were metal... Yeah, I know. Well, that's you're you're creeping into my world, actually. So, you know, original photo setting was a kind of revelation when from the analog days of working in a design studio where everything was sort of, you know, had to be ordered from the metal typesetting companies surrounding, you know, the area. And you'd have to mark the type up and then you'd have to correct it with all these long gone forgotten symbols now, which were second nature to me. Yeah. Well, see, my mum did actually know the symbols because she had to teach herself. So when she phototyped set, set, I mean, it was basically, it was so funny. It was this little tight computer. This was late seventies. Yeah. And it just used to come out as a tape. And then you, then we, you know, yeah, um, stick it up. And then, but then as mum said, she knew all the marks for the 
printers. Yeah. So I kind of knew about that as well because I used to help my mat doing, what do you call it, when you check the print, when you check the... Uh, they used to call it galley. I mean, uh, that, in, that's in metal setting. You check the galley and the galley yeah. is, a, is, is a sort of, you know, impression on paper for yeah. you to double check and then you'd mark it all up. Yes. So I was sort of used to help my like weekends and stuff did you help mum do that but that's when I was I suppose. so it was just you and your brother were you the elder of the two yes I was the right. eldest so um, what was your early school life like what, what did you um, I was not very academic right <laughs> I went to um Hotwell's primary school in mm. Bristol which at the time was a very strange combination of slightly hippie but also very old-fashioned and we still had the cane and so this is oh, uh, I must have gone there in about 1969 so I was four five in 1970 I probably started there so we still had the cane but then we had kind of quite sort of slightly hippie ideas and the, the surrounding area was either kind of quite working class or quite i suppose what we call kind of trendy but not affluent <laughs> what part of bristol would this, this be is, uh well i lived in clifton clifton and, okay so and, it's a, and a, lot of, a lot of the georgian sort of properties yeah and huge victorian properties yeah. and stuff and hot wells which is the area that joins sort of clifton and a lot of there's sort of various primary schools but i went to hot wells and it, it was it was fine it was um i don't think i had a brilliant time at school <laughs> Did, did you find that that sort of age there was anything that you were sort of leaning towards or were you just not sure you know i mean obviously i'm not thinking about sound design i'm just thinking about any creative pursuit was that part of your world or, or not um, what did you sort of really enjoy doing i did i used to enjoy painting i right. always liked that but anything else I, I think a lot of my school life was a certain amount of survival survival yeah why bullying I, that sort of thing oh i was definitely bullied for really because well, you know i was sort of i think my nickname was podge for quite a while which i desperately stopped from going but i left junior school i went to secondary school again i cannot have that nickname i can't do that but that was fine but i got to secondary school but it was fine i mean it was not like it was like horrendous bullying but it was sort of there most of the time so your your, your secondary school or m yeah, more uh, senior that was a, a lot better did you find like-minded friends and so forth is yeah i mean uh, i went to ashton park comprehensive mm -hmm. um i did enjoy it like especially the first few years i did i did enjoy ashton park i mean it was again academically absolutely rubbish um yeah. <laughs> school lost its sick form about a year after i left Right. So it didn't do great. But socially, it was good fun. And some of the teachers were, especially in the first two or three years, some of the teachers were really nice. I mean, as I said, it was sort of quite a, it was just a normal comprehensive. And when I was there, as I said, I wasn't very academic. I absolutely failed all my O-levels and CSEs. I got one grade one English language CSE out of Ashton Park. And then I went to Filton Tech, which I had all these aspirations of doing A-levels. That was not going to happen. <laughs> so you didn't go on to, you know, university or further no. education. No. So, so that means you would have left at what sort of age? 16, 17? Well, I, well, I left um, actual school at 15 because I'm an August baby. And then yeah. I re then I retook my O-levels and I left school at 16. Right. I left ed education of any sort at 16. Right. So what was your 
first job then? Presumably you had to find work. And so what yes. did you do at well, it that was sort of age? It was 1981 yeah. and um, there wasn't a lot of work. So I, I, used to, I used to do cleaning for my parents because they had an office at the time. And yeah. I did try and go for loads of jobs. Um, I used to help out. I just used to do odd sort of jobs here and there. I couldn't even get a, um, a waitressing job. <laughs> I honestly, in fact, there were yacht schemes. There was youth um, opportunity schemes and YTS. And I used to apply for those and I couldn't <laughs> on them. I was like, what is wrong with me? I actually went to, there was a printer's. No, it was a graphic designer's. And I, because I thought, well, I'm bad getting here because I actually understand it. I know about photo typesetting and everything. And I had little examples of what I'd done with my mum and stuff. No, I didn't even get that. <laughs> Obviously came across very badly. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's, uh, so well. What what was your first job then? My so, first proper job. So in the end, after sort of um, a certain amount of time of sort of being unemployed, I got a job as a receptionist in a post production company. Oh, was that uh, Nigel Ashcroft that was, Associates? Yes, that's Nigel Ashcroft Associates, and right. he was he was a pitcher, editor, but also had his own company. So he used to do all sorts of things, and he had a few staff. Some were pitch editors, one was sound recordist. And when I started, I was literally just reception. I was just a, you know, say yeah. hello production house. Yeah. Which took me a long time to get rid of that voice. Because <laughs> we were doing it. Optimistic myself. sounding. Yes. <laughs> hello productions. I also had to type all the invoices and stuff, which was very funny. <laughs> um, I had done some typing classes, but hadn't actually finished them. My typing was appalling. <laughs> It was, but I have to say that's probably helped in the end. But my, honestly, Nigel used to look at my, I used to type the invoices and, and letters and look at for it and go, well, there's going to be a mistake here somewhere again. Absolutely there will be. <laughs> and it's in the days when, you know, it was like blue copy paper. Yes. Funny days. But anyway, so I was, I was, I think I was good at answering the phone, but I was a very girl Friday. I, you know, was doing the washing up, making tea for the rest of the building. So there were various other businesses in the building. So I, you know, changed loo rolls sort of get people lunches i did everything but also at the same time obviously there were cutting rooms and nigel was a picture editor and in those days he was he was cutting a lot of documentaries and there were animations and then and so in a way me being such a rubbish secretary <laughs> i mean i basically said sort of, i you know i was interested and i had seen a steam bet before this equipment wasn't sort of totally as I said before, totally alien to me. And so I and I was in the cut room and I was Nigel's assistant editor. So I used to hang up all the trims, all the picture trims. Yeah. And he was he was very good. He used to let me cut sequences and a lot of this was natural history. And then there was animation and I used to do help out on the sound and on that when you have to do you have to kind of go through the voice of an animation and I can't try to remember the name of it. Basically you have to chart chart say it's a bit of dialogue and yep. they want to animate this bit of dialogue you go through and you write on a chart what frame each ooh ah 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 you know how yep. long it, if you say the word breathe like it'd be the, the b and a r e oh, you so, breaking so it, it down syllables into syllables yeah. in each frame so yeah. they know exactly which frame has to have what shape mouth so i used to do a lot of that and i used to do sound transfers for other people who used to come in they bring their quarter inch tapes and i would transfer them onto 16 mil so i did lots of all all sorts of different things and I, I was doing sound editing i don't think at the time nigel liked doing sound editing because it's like okay you do that one quite a lot of natural there was so natural history was there anyone there sort of teaching you or were 
were you picking it up pretty intuitively, sort of? At that time, it was sort of Nigel. But you know, there, there were there a lot of times. I think the good thing about being an assistant editor when it's with the editor all the time, pick stuff up, and you sort of know how things are meant to be. There are little things that you get told but a lot of it is once you've been in the cutting room for a while there's a kind of an assumption that you'll sort of know what you're doing which can be dangerous <laughs> yeah but um i suppose my whole experience at nigel's was it meant i had to look at lots of different things and then i think in in around 87 you you left and became freelance didn't you as yes. an assistant editor and okay. then and then you moved on to sound editing yes i did yeah 87 i went freelance yeah. and i started off in the country as a second assistant editor but then the it, this was on drama and what generally happens is you're an assistant editor or a second assistant editor and then you would move over to be an assistant sound editor which is what i did and and that was the it was a great learning curve because it was drama and I was working with a sound editor who was very good, Jonathan Miller. He was a particularly good sound editor. And he did teach me lots of things, a lot about the discipline of uh, how you sound edit and what are important sounds and don't lay lots of sounds just because it's good on the charts. Each sound has got to have a reason for for being there. And I think that's sort of something I picked up quite early on. And you still have to keep remembering that. Don't Each sound has to have its kind of reason for being there. Sure. And I think that's what I picked up doing drama. Did you know about or did you become interested in, in some of the, you know, the, the pioneers of the sound design craft? I'm I'm thinking oh. of you know like Walter Mersch or or, or much earlier Delia Derbyshire and 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 the BBC Radiophonic Workshop all of that sort of world and I, th- I think my first influences would have been Walter Mersch oh like Raging Bull which is weird because Dad I remember Dad in his office had when it went out had a huge poster of Raging Bull and I remember going to, I must have seen it after that because I would have been too young just about but the sound of that was amazing also the Coen Brothers films is Skip Leavesy which was probably kind of slightly later in my career but not that much I was thinking I watched Barton Fink by the Coen Brothers and Skip Leavesy did the sound on it and I was like wow <laughs> That is what you can do with just the sound of air conditioning. This is fantastic. And it was it was right in the middle when I started doing dramas and stuff. And again, but just the sound of a door going, and it created such a fantastic atmosphere. I love the fact that like, like later on, Skip Leaves, he's worked on obviously all sorts of things, but he also worked on documentaries. And at one point, I was up for the same ward against like Skip Leavesy was really? one of the nominations going, this is fantastic. Wow. <laughs> so you were really, obviously, you'd found your air creative area, it sounds to me. Yes. That, that, that you realised that this was a, a world that w- was as visual as, as as image, really, because you, you, you it, rather like the best things on radio, you create all the pictures in your head, and that's all through sound. Um, yes. And so I, I've, always, I've always been a lover of sound, ever since I listened to the way back in the 50s, the um, Journey into Space series where they had airlocks that made incredible noises and, you know, when the rockets lifted off. But later when I saw the film Forbidden Planet, Mm. and that was Lewis and and Barbara Barron who created what I think at the time on the credits, something called electronic tonalities. (laughs) Yes, well, that's kind of something, it's so, that kind of whole tonal world, which is always to composers, I can remember doing it, you've got to always watch the composer because it it sometimes sounds like a tune and can interrupt their 
compositions because yeah. they have got it. I think I was told I tend to, my effects and tones tend to be B major. I know very little about music, but apparently everything he worked, he was a composer and everything I worked on, he said, all your sound design is tending to be B major. So he, I think he Did said, you not explain that to you? No, because I went, wow, what's that mean? But it's obviously a tone or... yeah that I particularly gravitated to. Like, you know, when you, you're sounded and there are sounds, you go, right, that sounds right. And you know if it's to you, you know yeah. if it sounds right or not. Sure. And obviously I just gravitated to things that were in the key of B major. Well, then in 19, the 1990s, you joined Wounded Buffalo Sound Studios in Bristol, where you've been ever yeah. since. Absolutely. Um, and just spiralling up and up and up and <laughs> picking up all of these wonderful awards of which there are too many to list here. I will certainly in my introduction list uh, many of them because it's, I think, quite extraordinary because you you are in an industry that's still very male-dominated, isn't it, really? I think it's... It is. I mean, up until recently, I mean, I think that, oh, it wasn't that many years ago, I went to an award ceremony and uh, the only women there, apart from me, were on the... Um, hair and makeup table it was literally a whole huge room full of men in blo- dicky bows and me apart from one other table i mean this must have been probably about seven eight years ago but not that long ago but i think it is definitely getting better now when i go to bafta there are women generally not loads in sound it, it's still i saw a little article in the guardian i think which i think is about a year year old it said it's about seven percent of women in the in sound design area, and that's wow. that's across the board because you've got obviously theatre and you've got, you've got lots of music. There's many many sort of areas that sound obviously is involved with. Perhaps that's if it's concentrated on uh, film, it might be a little higher. But I was completely shocked because I would have thought, considering that people like you know Daphne Oram and Delia Derbyshire and um, Barbara Barron were pioneers in their own way. You would have thought that they would. Well, and they had that wonderful film that was made um, a couple of years back for the BBC about, I, I think, Delia Derbyshire, which was, I, I don't, did, did you see it? I, I, no, I don't think I've it's seen it. It's absolutely no, fantastic. If it. you get a chance, it's, it's written by the actress who plays the part mm. and it's beautifully made. And it's just, um, I think you'd really no, enjoy I will, it. I will, you'd I will, really I will. Enjoy but, but I think there's, um, how the kind of genders of the industry have changed is, is quite, I think, quite interesting. A long time ago, especially in America, most pitch editors were women because to start with continuity, they were called continuity girls. So continuity girls, one's going, yeah, no, you have to go back again. You have to move that pillow there because that's in a different place. And so you have to check every time they did a retake that everything was in the right place. Continuity girls then went on to be film editors because they're the ones who knew what was in each shot. So there was a lot of picture editors of women. And I think in the, there was a time when I started, there were probably, when very first started, there were probably more women in it because it was, you became an assistant picture editor and then the, you gravitated to being a sound editor. That was totally gender neutral. I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, everyone, you know, who was sort of started in post production would be an assistant editor. It doesn't matter what sex you were. But then when it went digital, you didn't have an assistant editor anymore. It was more to do with what software you knew how to use. So if you're my age at the yeah. time when it went digital in the early, in the sort of early mid 90s, yeah. mid 90s, probably 
definitely kicked in. I was already established by them, yeah. so I was sort of okay. But if you weren't, it would have been quite difficult to get into because there wasn't there wasn't that step there. There wasn't the step of being an assistant for two, three years. And I, I guess you had the advantage that you you know worked in the traditional way, the analog way, and then transferred over to digital. Did you find that difficult? I find it quite weird to start with. I remember when I very first, I think it was audio, yeah, audio file was the first um, digital thing. Um, you know, I still wanted my chinograph though, but and I found <laughs> the disconnect between my fingers and the sound. I did find quite strange because I was so used to a bit of magnetic tape and rolling it through and putting a mark yeah. on it and cutting it and joining it together. And that it all felt quite disconnected. But yes. once you get into it, it was great because the best thing about digital is I wasn't having to deal with tape hiss most of the time. I mean, sometimes you get tape hiss because of the way it's recorded, but I yes. wasn't adding to it with right. this magnetic tape adds its own special hiss. And I could lay up loads of tracks without having to rewind. I've seen a picture of your desktop, and I think in a, an interview mm. that you did, and it looked horrific. <laughs> I mean, it was layers and layers and layers of sound. Yes, there isn't a limit, but there is a limit because there's a time limit. And also it has to go to a mixer. And if you give a mixer endless tracks, I mean, mm. they're going to get lost. But as I said before, it's most you lay up what works and what sounds good. You can layer up millions and millions of tracks, but unless they're doing something, there's absolutely no point in being there at all. But it did give the advantage of it being digital, of me being able to hear all the tracks at the same time, because when it was on film, I could only listen to four tracks at a time. So you lay up four tracks, I take them off, rewind them, put in another four tracks. So I never got to hear everything at the same time until we got to the mix. So in a way, it's quite a good discipline because you you become quite good at knowing, right, no, I've covered that, that's that's in the first four tracks and I'm going to do others. You sort of connect with what you're laying up. Do you feel that because of the, you know, the enormous advantages in uh, using digital now that it's, it's got to a point where, you know, certainly perhaps in, in the world of gaming, which I know is not your discipline at all, but you've probably at BAFTA seen one or two of these yeah. gaming things and they are because of the very nature of the storylines and so forth. They're incredibly bombastic with noise and a lot of the, you know, the sort of um, DC film films that I've seen at BAFTA, you know, the superhero films. Yeah. I find I can't, I, I have to sort of leave, which in BAFTA is not a good move. No. Once or twice I've had to because it is so, I mean, because the sound is so good and th whoever, maybe the, if somebody's there from the production company asks them to jack it up a bit, it is like being in a war zone. Literally. Yes. I mean, sometimes it becomes overloading. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've been to mixes and stuff and you go, whoa, this is all getting too much in whatever genre of film. I mean, obviously action films and Marvel films and stuff are particularly noisy, but I think if they're done well, you should have the quiet. So, you know, otherwise you've got nowhere to go. Actually, very funny because I was watching the other day, they, they reran Psycho. Oh, yeah. And there are lots of moments in that film where it's absolutely silent. I know, no music. But I it mean, really works. Yeah. And Hitchcock creepy. was great at that, at actually removing everything and just, you just leave you there in this with the camera just moving. And well, it, it makes it very tense. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, that's, it does. I mean, that's one of the things about sound, it's about it being 
being there, but also it's about it not being there because then it makes whatever does happen more dramatic. Well, I, I, I don't know if you were listening to the Today programme this I morning. I did. Did you? Indeed. Did you hear? Yes, because yeah, that was my bit. Okay. Oh, I did that. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Because, I must... because it was my episode that went out on Sunday. So yes, of course. Yeah. Um, well, they're showing another bit, aren't they? He seemed to be referring to something else. There was one, there's one further on episode four, which is the crocodile. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, predation. L- leaping out of the water. Yes. I think it is. Yeah. I haven't seen that, so I sure. Yeah, that's. That's the other thing I was going to ask you because you're, you know, you're watching these sequences which are delivered to you mute. Mm. So you've got to, got to recreate the world of sound. You've got to bring the viewer in to believe what they're hearing is, is it, uh, absolutely true. There have been criticisms over the years. <laughs> With oh, people yes. when they discover what you mean, the sound wasn't really the sound. I know. I mean, what's different? We try so hard to make sure you know, all the atmospheres and uh, everything is right. You know, as, as we've discussed, it's like underwater. There are you have to have some dramatic license. We're allowed to have music on film, so I think we're allowed to have some dramatic license of you know with the angelfish. It kind of jumps out. And, you know, it's not basically a water leaping out, but um, and that worked really well because it did go really, really quiet. Actually, I was looking round for it, and then I, cause <laughs> when I was viewing, I went ah. There it is. The, the original Blue Planet, for me, a, a kind of gr- groundbreaking series because it really, I'd worked for the Naturalist Unit a lot, you know, I'd done mm. lots of wildlife and ones and uh, natural worlds and stuff like that, but I hadn't, I don't think I'd worked on a big landmark until Blue Planet 2, but Alistair Fothergill gave me the um, chance to. And well, the, f- the first episode I worked on, which wasn't, I can't remember which episode it was, but they had phytoplankton, yeah. you know, which had these tiny little eggs which are kind of moving very fast in a very particular way. And uh, I suppose it could have just had the sound of water going blah, 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 but it just didn't feel right. It wasn't enough. So basically I got the sound of a electric razor, a men's electric razor, mm-hmm. and EQ'd all the kind of sound, as mechanical sounds out of it as much as possible. So it basically had a flutter, so it was going... Yeah. <laughs> and nothing else. But it fitted so well. And a lot of sound editing and sound design is matching the movement to the sound it is finding the right sound that's that's doing the same thing and which is why the kind of you know, the faint flutter of an electric razor worked really well for the phytoplankton going with a little leg how often do you do that because because normally you've got obviously a whole mass of you know either either sound that's you know, wild sound or sound that's been recorded by someone on location. And then you've got a whole library of stuff um, that you can refer to. But then there are these occasions where you suddenly feel that actually there's not a sound for this, so I'm going to create it. So do you do much of that or do you well, involve Foley people to, to... Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Foley is... There are, there are times... When if I'm, I will try and get. I mean, the foley is done. Explain what foley is to yeah. people that don't understand, because the word foley is odd anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in the in the olden days, it was never called. Well, in this country, it was never called foley. It used to be called footsteps, but foley um, <laughs> cool. has has came has come over from America, and basically, it's all it's. You go into a dubbing theatre with a little studio, which has got lots of different sort of pits with gravel, earth, or water, and lots of different props. And uh, well, for a natural history, you usually get two days in there, and it's all those little noises that it is better to do to picture. Hmm. So you've got a fairly artist in there who can see a little spider going across a leaf and will make these tiny little noises. So it's just go so you can hear little feet going 
across a leaf. To do that as a sound editor would take too long and it wouldn't feel very natural. What's quite good is is there's a rhythm to um, footsteps or foley. You know, it can see, the foley artist can see the animal or the person move and get in the rhythm of it and, and make the sound for it. And it can create all sorts of different things. I mean, foley is, is very interesting. I mean, there are uh, noises. Some of foley artists are really secretive about how certain noises are made because that's their trade of course um they don't want everyone working out how to do it but i can remember what's um there's a horror film called dust devil and there's a truck crashing into another truck and then it goes on fire and then all these cows come out the back of it and i remember after the foley was done i was listening to it going that is amazing even the fire whooshes could be there was an element of foley can be added to it obviously there's a whole lot of you know sound effects that we were putting in but there are amazing things that you can do with Foley. They're, they're kind of a, a bit like these, you know, you've heard of beatbox uh, performers, yes? Yeah. That can create a whole band just yeah. from using their voice and the inner part of their mouth and breathing and God knows what else. And they can suddenly, it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, and a, you know, great thing to be able to do. Uh, I saw, a, I, I can't remember just now the name of the director, uh, who's a theatre director, and she put on at the Barbican, uh, one of the um, Ibsen plays, I think, mm. and she had Foley artists sitting at a long bent and also large screens so that you could see what was going on inside a house, which you could only see the outside of from the, from the main theatre. And it was incredible. I mean, the Foley artists were, you know, they were, when you see there's a party inside the house and they're pouring drinks, yeah. they're literally pouring. It was done perfectly. And I thought, well, that's obviously how, it, you know, it would have been done in the past, certainly on radio. It would all be, um, probably still did on the archers. As well, oh, no, I should absolutely. Think. I, I do hear all the archers going, oh, I'm not sure that is a Foley. I think they've got real sound effects in here now. <laughs> they're definitely doing outside recordings. <laughs> yes. But before, yes, it would be like barn door crack and yeah. sort of. Your your place at Wounded Buffalo, which is a very um, apt name, because there's so many killings <laughs> in the things that you do. I don't know how you can actually stomach some of them because they are really quite gruesome, and obviously you have to watch them in great detail. And you know, get oh, yes. every little noise for whatever oh. it might be—teeth going into flesh, or flesh being pulled away from the neck of a of a wildebeest or whatever, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, completely. I mean, in fact, that's where it's a good combination of Foley and sound effects because I tend not to leave everything to Foley because th there is only so much you can do. Obviously, everything is recorded from at a certain distance, so it's usually, it's good for very big close-ups. But I like to try, you know, if things like skulls, like teeth going into skulls and stuff like that quite <laughs> often happen, it's always good to find the real sound of a bone, like actually crunching. And actually, the, like things like lions attacking stuff, the best noises are when you've got a really good recording of a real lion eating something, yes, and it it just adds all the all the breathing sounds as well as the the kind of actual natural sound of a, a lion eating or the mouth sounds, which are, are are difficult to replicate. I mean, I've always said it's much better to use the real thing than um, kind of create it because a human mouth is very different from a a animal mouth. Yes, but, you, but basically, you use a combination. But as but it's finding the right track and fitting it so every little kind of mouth move and little growl is exactly in the right space. It's place so it, it sits really well. I mean, you must spend an enormous amount of time looking at your three screens, manipulating various elements. 
what do you do to relax from that world? Because it, it's not only, you know, you're looking at things in enormous detail and then you have to compose the sound elements to fit perfectly in sync with what the movements are. So that, that takes its toll on your eyesight and concentration. <laughs> so how do you, how do you relax? How, what do you do um, other than when you're not working? What's your, when I know, well, I do use, Oh, what do I do? I have gone back to doing painting, which is lovely, but I tend to only do that when I'm on holiday. And I just do watercolors, and it is so different from sound editing. Because you said it's, it's especially now it's it, it's all digital, all on computers, all screens. It it is quite intense, and you're sitting in the same position for yes endless hours, which has done my hip no good at the moment, which I'm trying to get fixed. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it feels like I don't do enough. But I said some painting. I did. You, you, I was doing loads of yoga for the past fifteen years, but my hip is too bad. I can't do anything at the moment. Right. Um, I do occasionally go to the cinema. I'm probably not as often as I should do. So the past yeah. few year, years, it's been so much work. Yes. Well, apart from going on holiday, I, mean, I did manage to go. You know, I do go holiday um, once a year. Do you and, get away to any of these places that um, <laughs> that the you know programs are filmed in? You know these exotic faraway places whether it's um either north or south pole or the andes or whatever all of no. those incredible locations <laughs> you don't <laughs> no I, I mean i have the one place i have been to which was a was a, a, absolutely amazing was uh worked on a disney nature african lions and i think that was the first disney nature i worked on they did take me and Tim from Wounded Buffalo out to a camp in the Masai Mara and so we could do sound recording and that was extraordinary and what is really was very pleasing you go out there and you listen to everything you know I'd never been to the Masai Mara before I was just I mean I we went back on this pitch from this tiny, tiny airport and driven uh, you know kid to camp and there was this giraffe and I was like going that's not a real giraffe <laughs> just like walking around and stood there I think it's my first photograph and like, everyone else is so blasé about it I go but it's like a giraffe just there. Um, but we we went to camp and you know have worked on loads of programs which are based in the Masomara um, Serengeti. Yeah. And what was lovely was listening to night, especially at night. You go, oh, not a bad job, Kate. It actually sounds <laughs> the real thing. You mean the real yeah. thing? And yeah. it was and um, that was that was an amazing experience because every morning me and Tim would get up and I had a lovely driver and researcher Tash and she would take us out. Mm. Sort of early in the morning and we just because it, it was about lions we would like follow she was pretty good at spotting and we had other spots as well where the lions were and we'd try and find where the cubs were and just sit there and like record what we called and then we that's because we really wanted wildebeest we didn't want the wildebeest uh, 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 sound I wanted the sound of the hooves uh -huh. and she went no it's fine because they, they were all starting to do their migration and we just found this one bit of earth which had been quite trampled down and actually when they ran past they were hardly making any honking noise at all but it was just the best sound of wildebeest feet running past and it was all nice hooves and there was some individual ones and then there'd be a crowd of them going past and what they've got these huge really nostrils happy. haven't they yes that make a funny noise a really go, uh, yeah exactly uh, yes. uh, uh, <laughs> yes. which can be a little bit monotonous why i was quite glad that they didn't make it they weren't doing too much of that but it was you find out all sorts of things recording when they're going crossing the river because there's so many of them you know you can hear the young ones starting to be slightly distressed and they're calling their parents so there's a different sound when they're 
crossing the river to when they're just out on the plains chewing. But I, it was lovely. And it's, you know, just they've got a recording of a vulture taking off, which <laughs> I don't think anyone would be that sort of amazed by. But honestly, to get the sound of clean, the sound of just wings of a real vulture flying off from a kill was, it was the most disgusting smelling thing I've ever been there. They look so grim as well, don't they? I mean, they, I mean, I know that they survive on death, but they look yes. like the bringers of death, you know, <laughs> horrible looking things. Of yeah, they are, yeah. <laughs> Obviously so immersed in the world of natural history uh, for, what, what is it, 30 odd years? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is a long time. It I mean, is. have you ever had an inkling that you'd want to get onto a to a sci-fi film or something like that or is that oh yeah <laughs> i mean because i have done i was probably said before i had I did you started work. out that way i did, I did, did you? do horror films and yeah. stuff which is a great way to be sort of learning especially to... today yeah <laughs> halloween <laughs> yes exactly I but think... I, horror films are really good because you can as a sound editor it's quite easy it's much easier to create sounds that are scary and ominous than it is to make things happy sounding. Yeah. I mean, uh, but it's, no, it's sort of anytime I get anywhere near close doing a horror film. Well, in fact, I did do one. I did work on a sort of horror film, but it was based in, in Kenya. And it was, I did, this was a kind of lockdown film. Oh, really? What was recent uh, was that? Oh, yes, I'm trying right. to remember what it was called. In fact, it is, Idris Elba has done one which was very similar, but this one came out first. Basically, it's a family of quite obnoxious people who go on a, hey, let's go away um, to Kenya for um, a trip. And then it all goes really wrong. And like a rhino charges into the um, Land Rover and they all, and then the leopard attacks another one. I mean, it was very funny. <laughs> Oh, so it, it was but, it but because it was a of, horror film. It was, was meant to be a horror film. It was sort of like a. But it had a lot of your your expertise in, yes, with the animals, is, and is that why you were which chosen? Which is why we think? Got, yeah, right. Okay. Too. So it was Absolutely. done through Wounded Buffalo, was it? It wasn't. The... Yes, I'm trying to think if it, it was my name came out first or Wounded Buffaloes, because sometimes it's it's just my name because they've seen my name or yeah. something else, or sometimes it's just generally Wounded Buffalo. I mean, we all worked on that one because I think it was just as yeah the producer was really good timing because it was just quite a quiet patch and it was actually quite fun to work on something that had humans in it yeah and add horror how did you how did you find that uh, was it a, a nice sort of relaxing diversion from working on the intricacy of all of those animal you know bees flies you name it I mean, you've got to you've got to attach so much it seems to me a dense form of sound design Mm. Um, because of the nature of what you know what you're trying to bring to life i think because because there there isn't dialogue there isn't kind of you no know, there aren't actors wandering around you are all the drama is within the natural world and so you do everything that i do is not exposed i mean you know there is music and there is um, oh there definitely is music <laughs> i mean it's it, i personally have love a relationship with music on film anyway because i think any any piece of music is telling me what to feel i really just can't yeah cope. i want music just to create an atmosphere and leave me to do the um the rest yes i know i do absolutely understand what you mean i mean it's, it's it's so funny how the amount of music uh, has changed I and mean, when i very first started 20 minutes of music on a 50 minute film was deemed extraordinary i mean i can remember going to 18 19 minutes on something and they go oh that's a lot of music now there will always be slightly more music than less of program because mm. 
they it generally overlaps. I mean, there are times, you know, I think that there has been a sort of shift in not making it too constant. I think, again, the public started to complain, didn't they? I, yes, I they seem do. to remember saying, yes. why do we have to have all this music over the top? I know. Because, I, mean, I, I mean, I've got my my own view about it. I don't mind music, but I what I put into it, I would like, I think people would like to hear. And I always say, like, at the beginning of a sequence, please let you hear the natural world. Hear it first. If you go into the music all the way across, like, every sequence change then you've lost where you are it's i mean the whole one of the points of um what i do as a sound editor is to establish where you are to, so people can get the geography away or whether the time of day has changed and you need to hear that so i was very interested if, like, if you start a sequence just to hear all the natural sounds we're coming to the end now i, I, I always ask this question about budding students you know that might want mm. to get into the world of sound and as we've already said you know there's a very small proportion of women particularly, which I think really rather sad. Yes. Um, what advice would you give to any budding student that would like to get into your world? Um, well, because there aren't kind of assistant roles particularly anymore. But what's good, if, if you're at your university and even if you're not, your module isn't particularly about sound, you, you can still sort of involve yourself in it. You can go, recording sound is now really easy. You can do it on your phone. I record stuff on my phone all the time if I'm on holiday you can record it you can there is software that you can download for sound editing even if it's you know garage or whatever you know is free and practice how you can put sound to pictures and and what difference it can make then after that I suppose it is you go around post-production companies and and sort of can show show people like us what you've done and you know we've got people who you know come around to bring a buffet go ah you know you're just the sort of person we want and it's stuff that, that they've done at home and it is it's sort of having that passion for detail a lot of people go off the boil with sound editing because it's it takes time it's not there's not instant gratification at all when you cut a picture you go chung chung and it and it's kind of cut is done but sound you need to have the patience to layer things up and then you ah that works now it, it, it's very rarely it's not instantaneous so it is something you need patience for but i think if you you know try stuff out at home if you if you're doing a film try and do other people's put the sound on other people's films yeah because a lot of people i mean this is a lot of people i know who come in there and are at buffalo did the sound for all their friends films because yes. they weren't interested in them but it, they they're so appreciative when you do the sound for their film because they course. go oh that makes it like look like a is it look like a proper film now <laughs> um because it's and i i you know i've watched a lot of student films so sometimes i i do on juries and stuff like that yeah and it's amazing um the simplest film can be brought to life because someone has spent a, a little bit of time doing the sound and it just makes it all the difference it's um incredible well that's very good advice um Kate Hopkins, thank you very much for sharing your RDI insights. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Mike. It was That's a pleasure right. <laughs> to you. Well, we got there in the end. <laughs>